Well, good morning. Thanks, Allie. Chris, somebody else over there. I don't know where it was, but happy June. Halfway through another year. Woo. Um, yeah, so we're currently in a series on the Beatitudes, which are really, um, we're looking at God's perspective on what it means to be blessed. Um, and we've seen actually every week that that's actually what God's idea of being blessed is, is very different than what our culture says is being blessed. Um, and so we're going to uh, continue to do that this morning. And I want to read uh, for us. I don't think anything's up there, so you may have to get your own Bibles out. How about that? Um, or pull up on your phone, Matthew chapter 5. Um, we're going to look specifically at verse 8 this morning, um, but I want to read the whole thing for us as we uh, get started this morning. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Verse 8, we're going to look at this this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who persecute you because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you um, that you do not leave us alone here. Father, we thank you that you give us your word so that we may know you. Father, we thank you that you give us your spirit so that we may understand the depths of God. Father, we pray that you would teach us this morning, that your spirit would remind us of truth, that you would call us into a deeper love and affection for you. Father, we thank you that uh, we get to talk about who you are today. Father, pray that you would be seen um, in our hearts and in our minds. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember from last week, uh, we said that what Jesus is doing here in verses 7 through 9 is he's really describing what it looks like when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in verse 8, which we're going to focus on today, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's a result of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, is, is a pure heart, is purity. Now, a pure heart really is what God has always been after. Um, 
Jeff read this this morning, but I think it's worth reading again in Ezekiel 36. God promises this to His people. It's what God has been after. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God has been after a new heart for His people, for His children since the beginning of time. And all throughout Jesus' ministry and on this earth, we see that he continues to be concerned with the heart. He often says, it's not enough just to clean up your act on the outside, to just change how you're living. It's not enough. Because I think oftentimes people think about Christianity, they think about that it's just a, it's a new way to do life, or it's a, it's a new set of rules, or it's a new, it's a new way to, to think about morality. Um, but that's not it at all. The aim of, of Jesus is not to reform the actions of our culture. That's not what Jesus is after. He's not trying to reform the actions of our culture. He wants to change the hearts of sinners and people like you and me. He doesn't want our actions. He wants our heart. Jesus says this exact thing a little bit further on in this, um, in this Sermon on the Mount that he's given in, in verse 21 and 22. He expands on this and he says, You've heard it said uh, of those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But Verse 22, But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. It says the same thing in verse 27 and 28. You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, Jesus is not satisfied if we like, went about L.A. and we got rid of murder and we got rid of adultery in our society. like If we had a city where there was no murder and no adultery, that's not what he's after. That's not his main concern. I may be dating myself here, but um, I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I actually, 30 years ago, uh, last week, I graduated from high school. I realized that. It's kind of crazy. Um, anyway... So now you know how old I am. Uh, but anyway, there was an old movie that Tom Cruise uh, was in called Minority Report. Anyone ever seen that movie? It's kind of classic-ish. Maybe not. I don't know. But anyway, if you remember that movie, I thought about it when I was thinking about this this week. Anyway, there's, there's a, the, the, the plot of the story is that Tom Cruise is a part of this police force, and they go and they arrest people before they commit a crime. Right? They're based on some precogs or something. These people sleeping in water. I don't know. But anyway, um, <laughs> sci-fi. Um, it was cool back in the day. Um, anyway, this like, city hadn't had a murder or a crime for like 25 or 30 years, whatever it was. And it was, it was kind of pictured as this perfect society. And, and I know that's kind of like something we just watch in movies, but I wonder how often we are trying to do the same thing. If we could just in some way pass some law um, or some way to legislate life in our city so there would be no murders. Right? If we could, for one side, if we could just remove all the guns, then no one would kill anyone. For maybe the other side, if we just gave everyone a gun, then people would be afraid to commit something, and then no, there would be no violence. Right? Like, that's, that's the two sides. Right? Like, we're trying to remove crime. We're trying to remove murder from our society. If we just passed harsher laws, if we change our education system, if we fix the demise of the family, then our city, then our world would be better. I wonder how often, even in this room, 
we think more about political change than we think about heart change? How much time do you think about and talk about and listen to political rhetoric and compared to actually thinking about heart change? Maybe a way to gauge that is how, how upset you get do when, when a law is passed or someone gets into office or someone tweets something that you, don't, that you don't like. How often does it consume you? I want to remind us this morning that the reality is our local, our state, our federal government is helpless in solving any problems of our society. It's a futile attempt to legislate morality and it's never going to work. It's never going to work. I'm not saying don't vote or be concerned with the brokenness of our society, but understand what Jesus says in this beatitude, that what, if Jesus is actually saying that, what our society says is that beatitude is irrelevant. Based on our cultural standards, what Jesus says is completely irrelevant. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Right? Not for they will legislate millions of dollars so that like, we can wipe out crime. Rather, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I think one of the fundamental problems with, in our culture is that we, we attempt to solve human problems while we neglect the centrality of God in the heart. We look around, we're so bombarded with, with human tragedy and with poverty and with crime and with abuse and neglect and with war, and with all kinds of injustice. And we, it's so easy for us to get caught up and incorrectly agree with, with our culture and seeing really that God is a byproduct if we fix these other things. If we seek to fix these temporal issues, then we're, we're going to see God rather than going after the root of the problem, which is actually the heart. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Not because they'll change society, but because they will see God. You see, seeing God is actually the goal of being pure. Our culture, our lives will collapse if we abandon the goal of actually seeing God. Now this is not something that's new to us. It's not something that we invented in this city or in this country. In fact, um, it's been the struggle of humans since the beginning of time. Instead of seeing God, we saw humans, the first humans saw the fruit. They saw the knowledge as more desirable than actually seeing God himself. And now we live in a culture that actually, that actually thinks the more knowledge we have, the less we actually see of God. The less God exists. The smarter we become, the, the less we think God exists. We flipped it completely upside down. Until we realize, really, that since that fateful day in the garden, every human has looked at something else instead of God. And that has changed our view on how we view the world around us. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, says this, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus is telling us here, right, in Matthew, that, that what you are in the secrecy of your thoughts, in your feelings, in the, the inner root of where you are, where no one else can see, 
is what actually matters, not the outside. What you are in the invisible matters more to God than what is on the visible. And too often we, we look at just the outside to define people and to define ourselves. But the heart is really what Jesus is utterly, what is utterly critical to Jesus. What we are in the deepest, darkest, private recesses of our lives is what he actually cares about the most. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world to simply because we had some bad habits that needed to be broken or because we needed to, to fix a few ways that we were living. He came into the world because we have dirty, impure hearts and we needed to be made pure. Romans 3 says there's no one righteous, no, not one. Nobody. That's our condition. That's who we are. We're, we're not clean on the inside. And until we actually realize that and understand that and understand the depths of that, we will keep on trying to clean up the outsides in hopes that something pure on the inside will be revealed. And the more we do that, we'll only find more and more dirt and we'll continue to walk in light of our cultural story instead of turning and seeing God first. That's the reality. But the good news is that Jesus has changed that. That Jesus' inside, Jesus' heart, matched his outside. That he was actually righteous. And Jesus didn't just say, follow my example. He didn't just say, do all the things that I do. He says, I know you have a heart problem. I know you have a heart problem and you can't fix it. But through faith, through, my, through what I've done, is that my pure heart can now be counted to you. That you and I deserved wrath, but instead Jesus stood in front of us as God poured out His wrath, and His righteousness now can be counted to you. It's what we call this big word for imputed righteousness. That because of Jesus, we get to have a pure heart. Like we talked about last week, um, Jesus is speaking both here in the present and in the future. Right? And so when it comes to a, a pure heart that Jesus is talking about, it's both now and a future reality. Another way to think about this is maybe it's, it's perfect and progressive. It's a gift that's, that's counted to ours that we receive through faith, and it's a gift that, that, um, that, that which is ours that we are acting out in our daily lives, and we're performing by faith in His power. That's what Second Thessalonians is all about. That through Jesus, we've been given perfect, pure, righteous heart that someday will actually be perfected at the end of our lives when Jesus returns and Jesus completes the process will become both practically, personally, and perfectly righteous. And the reality is that, that you and I can't make any progress in the practical. We can't live out purity until we are actually accepted by God forgiven of our sins, and declared perfectly pure. We can't. We can't do it on our own. And it's important, really, that we understand that, because when we truly understand that, it means that, that any effort we make in faith through the Holy Spirit to put to death any brokenness or any sin in our life doesn't make us more pure. 
It doesn't give us a right standing before God. It's actually just a consequence or an effect of our right standing with God. And that is huge to understand because if we flip it around, we won't actually live the gospel. We'll try to just continue to fix the outside and clean up the outside and we'll never turn from our idols and we'll never turn and actually see Jesus. But if you do get that right, then you will see with all your heart and you'll say, oh man, I cannot believe that he's done that for me. I didn't deserve a pure heart, but yet he gave me one. He's a better God. He's a better Savior. He's a better political figure. He's whatever. He's better. He's the one that's actually worth worshiping. And when we understand that, we receive the promise of God that he says in this verse, you get to see God. That's the promise of a pure heart, that you get to see God. To see God means that you get to be in His presence. Seeing God doesn't mean we just get like to see a picture of Him, or you get to just like see Him from afar across the room. No, it's like when you, when you call the doctor up and you're like, I need to see the doctor. You don't want to just like see them. You don't want to just read their little bio that they went to UCLA or whatever. Right? Like, you want to have an appointment with them. You want to sit down with them. You want to talk to them. You want to discuss what's going on with you. You want to get their help. You want to be in their presence. That's what it means that we get to see God. That we get to be in His presence both now and in the future. Seeing God means that we get to be amazed and overwhelmed by His glory and His holiness when we see Him. In the book of Job, if you ever read the book of Job, um, You'll see that after all this heartache that Job, Job goes through and all this, he has this banter back and forth with his friends and, and they're, they're telling him all the things that he's done wrong and why he's, his life is a mess. And, and after that, Job has a, Job has a direct experience with, with God. And in chapter 42, he, Job says this. He says, I had heard of thee by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job was probably one of the most righteous people that ever walked this planet. And when he sees God, he says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. When Job sees God, he's overwhelmed with God's holiness and it changes his perspective. You see, seeing God allows us to see who we are and how amazing His gift actually is to us. Seeing God is the great goal of being pure now. It's the reality of, the, of what is, is really the virtual, in all of our spiritual sight, is, is either, it's either mediated to us through the Word of God, or it's mediated to us through what the works of God in life. We get to see images and reflections of God's glory. We get to hear maybe, we say, echoes or reverberations of His voice throughout, through others or throughout creation. And, but the good news is that we will actually come a day when God Himself will dwell among us. His glory will no longer be just inferred. It will no longer just be like, oh, I saw some of God in the ocean or I saw Him in the lightning or the thunder or the mountains or the universe or the stars. Instead, we'll get to experience Him directly. 
His glory, it says, will be the very light in which we move about. His beauty will be what we taste on our lips like honey. For all eternity, we'll get to see and be awestruck with the holiness and the experience of God's glory. But I want to say, seeing God is even more than that. As amazing as that is, it's even more than that. Seeing God means that we're not only just awestruck by being in His presence, but that it actually gives us great comfort and, and gives us great comfort in the grace that we have received. Over and over and over again, if you read the book of Psalms, you'll see the writers cry out to God to not hide their face, not hide His face from them. Just a few. Psalm 27. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Psalm 69, 17. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Psalm 102. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Psalm 143. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. We could go on, but basically what he says is, when hide not my face from me is the same way of saying, God, be gracious to me. It means that seeing the face of God is to be considered a sweet, comforting experience of grace. It's this idea, if God shows up, if God shows His face, we are helped. And if He turns His face from us, we're dismayed. And so when Jesus promises here in Matthew the reward of seeing God, it means that we'll be in His presence and we'll be awestruck with the experience of His glory, but we'll also be helped and comforted by His grace. A grace that we get to experience both now and in the future. This is the promise that Jesus is making to us in Matthew, that we get to see God. What good news that is. What good news that is to us that we get to see God, that we get to be in His presence, that we get to be comforted with His grace. In Psalm 24, um, there's an Old Testament parallel to this beatitude. And I want to take a look at verses 3 and 4 real quickly. Um, I think it's important for us to see this because it builds on this. In Psalm 24, verses 3, it says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false, nor does not swear deceitfully. I want us to to see this, this Old Testament parallel because the definition of a pure heart is really laid out for us here at the end of verse 4, where it says, really, a pure heart has nothing to do with falsehood. A pure heart is truthful. It's free from from deceit. Deceit Deceit is when we conceal the truth. When you say one thing, but you actually believe something else. How often do we do that in our hearts? How often do we do that with our lives? We say one thing, but we, but we live out something else. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded men. Notice that just like in Psalm 24, there's, there's a reference to both clean hands and a pure heart as, as preparation for actually drawing near to God, for ascending to the hill of the Lord, or seeing God. 
Earlier in James, uh, it'll, it talks about a double-minded man is a person who's described as, as one who's, whose heart is divided between the world and with God. And he says in, in verse 4, actually earlier in James, that, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy with God. Make sure that you understand this or you hear this. The call here to have a pure heart is really an identity statement. It's the call to actually live out the reality of who you truly are. That if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, He's changed you, He's given you a new heart, a new heart that actually seeks God. It's the identity of actually looking at God and seeing Him in all areas of life and allowing the definition and and the sight of God actually to change our view on what we're seeing around us and how we view the culture and how we view life and how we view every other relationship. You see, later on in Matthew 22, Jesus explains a pure heart. And um, when people ask him about this later on, he teaches and then then the the religious leaders come back and they ask him and he he explains it in chapter chapter 22. And he says, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, don't live a double-minded, divided heart. He's saying, don't live deception. No double-minded, no divided allegiance. A whole heart, a whole mind, a whole being. Purity of heart really means that we value God. That we value His truths, we value what He says, and that we value everything that God does in every area of life. The aim of a pure heart is to align ourselves with the truth of God. Really to magnify the worth of God so that the world would get to see and experience the presence of God. Right? That as we are awestruck with His glory and as we're comforted with His grace, that that is the good news that changes the culture around us. And the city around us is the purity and being able to see God. It's not a new set of morality. The presence of God is what we actually offer to people. As we live out authentic lives in this new identity, getting to see God is a way better prize. Getting to see God is way better than than no murders in our city. Than no adultery in our city or any other social justice or reform that we could offer. Yes, we work in those things, but the presence of God is what we offer to people. That we get to see God. That you and I get to see God. That's the good news. That we get to see God right now. And we get to see God for all eternity. What good news is that? Someone should say amen. Please, I know we're white, but come on. Like, I'm working here. We get to see God. It's amazing. I'm going to stop because um, this is Celebration Sunday. And one of the things that we do during Celebration Sunday is that we talk about ways that we have seen and experienced God. And so what are some ways this week or this month or this year that you have seen God? Let's share some experience of of the way that He has blessed us with His presence. 
Ways that maybe you were awestruck with his glory, with his holiness, and that you've been, maybe ways that you've been comforted by his grace. What are some ways? Let's celebrate that together this morning. What are some ways you've seen God? Well, why don't we do this? I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask Jeff to come up, and we're going to continue to look and see and feel God's presence as we take communion, and then as we continue to sing, and then as we have a meal together. So, Father, we thank you that, um, that you love us so deeply. Thank you that, um, that you've blessed us, that you um, have called us into your family, and that you've given us a new heart, a pure heart, that we get to see you, that we get to experience you, um, that it's not just some future reality, but that we get to experience and see you right now in the present. Father, I pray that we would be people that, that continue um, to seek heart change rather than just exterior change. Father, I pray that we would live out the truth of the gospel in our city in those ways. Father, I pray that you would continue and call more people to yourself. Father, I pray that you would even do that this morning, that you would make more, more pure hearts in this city. Father, we thank you um, that we get to celebrate you and that we get to worship you and that we get to be comforted by your grace this morning. Father, I pray that we uh, would not see anything else but you. Father, I pray that you, who you are would define who we are. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.